the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Lord of mercy, Lord of mercy, Lord of mercy. In the name of the Lord, Father, please give the blessing. Lord, bless all of our work that it may be for our salvation, for the benefit of others, and to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. Amen. God is glorious in his saints. Welcome to another conversational episode presented by Generative Sounds and Paradosis Pavilion. My name is James John Marks, coming to you from the city of Chicago, and with me once again is Father Simeon Keys. Father, you're not where you were the last time you and I spoke on air, are you? I am not. I am no longer in Houston, Texas. I am now in Iowa City, Iowa. Uh, and this move to Iowa City has brought a new program to the Paradosis Pavilion catalog, hasn't it? It has. Now I have an eastward Iowa City uh, podcast, and it is uh, intended to introduce people locally to the Orthodox faith. We are a college town. Many people don't know much about Orthodoxy at all. So it's available to anyone who wasn't wants to listen to it, but it is really for people who live uh, close to where we are so we can physically invite people to our parish. That's wonderful. Well, I can say that my family and I are certainly glad that you are now relatively close to us again. Uh, and I'm glad this has provided an opportunity for you and I to work more closely together and more regularly. Uh, for those listeners who don't know, Father Simeon edits the scripts for this show to help ensure that the information we provide is correct and well within the patristic tradition. Uh, while my own efforts through Generative Sounds have been on doing post-production for Father Simeon's podcasts, and it's been a joy. Uh, as a bit of a teaser for next week, with God's help, we will uh, complete the circle by having iconographer Nicholas Pappas of St. Demetrius Press join us uh, for a conversation with the three of us, which will be the first time the whole production team uh, will be on the podcast altogether. And we're excited about that. It's been in the planning stages for some months now, uh, and we're looking forward to sharing our friendship and our creative collaboration with the audience. Uh, introductions out of the way. This week on the Christian Saints podcast and Eastward Iowa City, we are remembering St. Ephraim the Syrian, whose feast day is the 28th of January. Uh, Father, there were a few other contenders for this episode, uh, some big contenders, but you had a particular reason for wanting to talk about St. Ephraim. Uh, would you highlight for us here at the beginning what that reason was? I would say that St. Ephraim the Syrian, his hymns on paradise, is, it is really a, uh, a text that I use in catechism. Um, it's very important to my catechism. And it is also a book, The Hymns on Paradise, that I would recommend to seminarians who are going to seminary. So I find it to be a great expression of what our salvation is about, what our problem is, and that path of healing. And it is in poetic form, so it's in a different form than some people are accustomed to reading. So that's why I love St. Ephraim the Syrian. That's one of the reasons I love St. Ephraim. His life itself is an inspiration, but the text uh, that we have is, is great for really learning the spiritual life uh, and uh, learning about what the Orthodox faith is all about. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to uh, learning more about those texts today. But before we get into those, uh, we should make sure people know who we're talking about. So I'll, uh, I'll give a brief biography. St. Ephraim was born to a poor family in the city of Nisibis, which is right on the border of Syria and Turkey in around the year 306. Some sources indicate that he was a bit of a wild child, hot-tempered and 
heedless of the piety of the family and community in which he was being raised. But as a young man, he encountered St. James, the first bishop of Nisibis, who brought Ephraim onto the path of the way of the life of faithfulness and eventually ordained him as a deacon and gave him authority to teach and preach in the community. Uh, as one might expect from a man with a strong personality, as Father Simeon said, St. Ephraim wrote hymns and poetry in addition to his homilies, uh, and it will be this poetry that we're going to focus on today. Uh, unfortunately, later in his life, the city of Nisibis was repeatedly caught up in the power struggles which rocked the Roman Empire in the wake of the death of St. Constantine the Great. Uh, the people suffered uh, the ravages of war, both from the Persians attacking from the east, as well as eventually the Emperor Julian the Apostate, who, as he marched his armies west against the Persians, fell into the ancient habit of persecuting Christians who sought to live a quiet and peaceful life in the empire. Uh, by God's grace and through the saints' unwavering faith, his encouragement of the people, the city did survive all these things, but when Julian died during the battle with the Persians, his successor Jovian, who was at least an Orthodox Christian, was forced to cede the city to the Persians, which resulted in many refugees fleeing back westward into the heart of the empire. Uh, as a consequence of this, St. Ephraim took up his old role, teaching and preaching in the city of Edessa when he was uh, somewhere in his 50s, uh, and he remained there until his death in his 60s, sometime between the year 373 and 379. Uh, Father, is there anything you'd like to add to that before we go on? Oh, that's great. That's perfect. Uh, well, I believe you've uh, selected some specific examples of his poetry uh, for us to discuss today. How would you like to get into this material? Well, we can begin by reading a selected passage and then discussing it a little bit. That's probably the best way to go about it. These are passages, by the way, that come from my personal catechism notes. So what that means is that they relate to something I'm teaching on in catechism, particularly our problem, our diagnosis, and also our healing and that healing being accomplished within the church. So these notes are really there in my catechism notes so that if we want to go deeper into catechism beyond just a basic teaching, uh, a simple teaching, we can look at the primary texts of the fathers and, and then discuss them. So these passages for me are very practical passages in that if someone wants to talk about certain issues, I would show them that these texts and we could discuss them. So if you'd like to read a passage, we could we can discuss it. Certainly. I'm happy to do that. Uh, so this first one is uh, from hymn eight. David wept for Adam at how he fell from that royal abode to the abode of wild animals. Because he went astray through a beast, he became like the beasts. He ate together with them as a result of the curse, grass, and roots, and he died, becoming their peer. Blessed is he who set him apart from the wild animals again. It's great to hear that. I'm usually the one who has to read it for people. So this is, this is great. I love this passage because one of our problems as human beings, one of the effects of the fall, one of the effects of sin, is that we are driven by these unnatural movements of the soul, which we call passion. So for the Orthodox, if someone asks me, what is our major problem? Like, what is our diagnosis in a word? 
the word I use is death. Sin causes death. And we have death in our bodies, mortality, but we have this death in our souls. And that is manifested in many different ways. But what we see in this passage, and we'll see it again, is this image of Adam and how he fell from this place, this royal abode, with this opportunity to grow and mature in God's grace and God's presence and become more and more radiant. But the one who is called to be over the beast and even have authority over the beast and name the beast is the one that fell to become like the beast. And it's really interesting because uh, in America, when I want to teach the book of Genesis, somebody wants to talk about science and biological evolution. But Genesis is really concerned with our de-evolution, our devolution from being in the image of God and acting like that with potentiality to become like God in as far as a creature can become like the uncreated one by becoming partakers in the divine nature. How we go from there to becoming like an animal and taking on kinship with the animals. In fact, one of the ways of interpreting the putting on of animal skins is that we put on a a mortal flesh, a mortality uh, that is really the skin of animals, that we became more and more like the animals. And and I love this because it, it speaks about this kinship with the animals. And, and David knew something. He wept for Adam, and yet he knew something about the fall or a fall, right? To be uh, following the passion and where following a passion leads. And yet David becomes for us a model of repentance, of returning right back to the place we should be. And at the very end of this, blessed is he who set him apart from the wild animals again. This reminds me really of the, of the way that we read and the way that we sing in the church. We are incredibly self-honest about our problems in the church. And, and those hymns and prayers uh, really help to diagnose our problems so if we're not aware of them, uh, then we become aware of them. Uh, so we have the self-honesty and yet we're not stuck in this place of, of where we are now. We have this opportunity to be restored to repentance and to be healed. So we have this real stark image of this fall and yet at the end we have the hope because God has come to restore us. In so many ways that's the opposite of the culture we live in now which doesn't want to believe it has a diagnosis, it wants to believe everything is fine and we also insist that we aren't going to change and can't change, that we're just fine exactly the way we are and nobody should tell us that there is a problem that we need to fix. So it's it's amazing it's almost exactly the opposite. It is. I mean, so many things are the opposite, right, within, within the church. And interestingly, we often 
in order to try to fix ourselves, even if we're even aware that there is a problem, which is unpopular. We often don't want to think that we have a problem because we live in a culture, speaking of opposites, that is the opposite of the story of the, the publican and the Pharisee, which is this story from scripture about how we should not judge other people uh, and, and pray with pride and have this spiritual delusion, but how we should be focused on our problems. And in that, in repenting and being from being aware, uh, being aware and repenting, we should, I should say, uh, we are finding healing and, and God responds to us. He responds to that humility and that desire to change and that request for mercy. The opposite in our culture is present, and that is that I want to feel good about myself and I want to feel righteous. So I will feel righteous by finding someone who I think is not being righteous, and I will call them out on it. Right? So we, uh, we, we make ourselves feel better by constantly judging other people and deeming them worse because of if someone is worse than I am, then that must be mean that I am, I am good. So that is a big difference in our in our culture. Absolutely. The other thing that I uh, was impressed by in this particular uh, poem, I think sometimes when we read Genesis three and we read about um, dying by death, and then we get to the end of the chapter and they don't die, or at least it doesn't seem like they die, and. It, we can either turn that into an error in the text or a problem with the text, or we can recognize that what's really going on is they died real death. They're put out of the presence of God and God is life. And so while their body doesn't die yet, their spirit has entered into death in that it is separated from God. And um, I think it's St. John the Theologian, but it might've been someone else who's, who clarified for us that that spiritual death is the real death, the more important death. Right. There is the death that is the separation of the soul from the body, but that separation of the soul from God, that is our spiritual death. And Christ rose from the dead, and that is raising up our human nature from death, destroying the power of death. So at the end of the age, we rise from the dead. And that, that body is physical and spiritual. And the question is, do we experience this existence then that is what's called the second death, this continuing existence apart from God, which is hell, or do we live in the kingdom of God forever? And, and that is why in the church we focus primarily on the healing of the soul. If the soul is healed, then our transition into the next life and into the kingdom is a natural progression. Uh, so. And actually, I mean, there is a connection between physical sickness and, and the pursuit of, of medical healing in the body and, and the spiritual life too. All of these things are really intertwined in the life of the church. But we do need to recognize that primarily the worst problem that we have is death in our soul. And, and that really needs to be the focus of our efforts. The, the healing of the soul. And actually, if we're working on the healing of the soul, uh, then we will have a completely different view of things like our own aging and sickness 
and the uh, eventual death that we're going to experience in the body. That's true. Shall we move on to the second poem? Certainly. Okay, this comes from hymn seven. In his justice, he gave abundant comfort to the animals. They do not feel shame for adultery nor guilt for stealing. Without being ashamed, they pursue every comfort they encounter. They are above care and shame. The satisfaction of their desires is sufficient to please them. Because they have no resurrection, neither are they subject to blame. The fool, who is unwilling to realize his honorable state, prefers to become just as an animal rather than a man, so that without incurring judgment, he may serve naught but his lusts. But had there been sown in animals just a little of the sense of discernment, then long ago would the wild asses have lamented and wept at their not having been human. This is one of my favorite passages in the book. It's really striking. Again, opposites, right? We, we act like animals. And if the animals had a little more awareness, then they would want to be human. And this is really, uh, in many ways, the, the problem, the experience of, of sin. And this is true of all human history, but certainly it is, it is true of life today. Right? And that is that the animals are animals. Animals were created to be and do as they do. And we are created in the image of God. We're created to be different than the lower animal. So they go and do what they do, and yet we are created in, the, in this higher state. But the passions, these unnatural movements in the soul, if we follow them, we live according to inclination, according to impulse. And they feel natural for us in our sixth state, right? And that sickness involves our hearts, which is the, the center of the spiritual life of the person, our rational minds. People very easily fall into delusion. The more educated you are, the more complex your arguments can be about justifying uh, doing what you want to do. And that affects our body. I mean, we are really psychosomatic. We are, we are soul and body. And as we can, glorify God with our bodies and bring our bodies along this path of salvation and involve our bodies in our spiritual therapy, we certainly can sin with the body. So this is the problem. If we follow the passions, then we act like the animal. And we serve these passions. We are, we are uh, following the passions into this sort of bestial sort of experience where we become animalistic and we go farther and farther actually in the opposite direction from where we should be going because to become more and more human means to become more and more like God and we become less and less like a lower animal and interestingly we live in a culture that sometimes we even look at animal behavior and try to justify human relationships and human behavior on the basis that it can be found in the animal kingdom. And that's such a, such a strange thing. 
because animals do it, it must be natural. Yeah, exactly. And uh, the spiritual life for us, it has been summarized as we live in accordance with nature and we avoid those things that are not in accordance with nature that we might become what is beyond nature. So at the core of the ignorance of people today, at the core is this misunderstanding of what is natural for a human being. What does that mean? Not what feels natural, or what can we can justify as natural, but what is this natural path? And that natural path really is being in the image of God and following the way that leads us to likeness. And in fact, to be like Christ, if I say to someone, you know, I want to be like Jesus, what is heard is I want to live, you know, a moral life. I want to be loving and nice to everyone. But to be like Christ, to be like Jesus, to be like God means something else uh, entirely, something that will make us more loving, something that will perfect our love and perfect our patience and perfect our humility and perfect our obedience. But being like Christ means being so filled with God's presence that it, it changes us entirely. And we still are who we are. It's really more of a transfiguration than a transformation, if we want to be specific about it. But it is about radiating with God's presence, and that changing us and making us different. And that makes us more and more different than the lower animals as well. So this, this is a great passage that I use in catechism. Uh, when I talk about our diagnosis as human beings. What is our problem? We need a correct diagnosis, and then we need a therapy that follows the diagnosis. So if we don't know what's wrong with us, then we don't know what the correct therapy is. We don't know what our goal is. We don't know what healing really looks like. So this is what I use specifically to talk about a major aspect of this condition of death that we find ourselves in. It's, it's interesting to me, living where I live now in a, a large city, in a very uh, cosmopolitan city, and in a particular part of that city, uh, the culture here, the affluent culture in an urban setting is so obsessed with, with youth and immortality. Uh, people spend hours and hours a week uh, in an artificial gymnasium running on a hamster wheel, and we've reduced food from hospitality that we can share with family and friends and neighbors to you know a protein shake and a bottle because it's this perfect nutrition and it's it's all almost a return to a very pagan approach where you know the things we worship are these attributes of strength and youth and power and beauty and it's interesting that as we do that you know i think back to actual pagan idols that often the statues themselves would take on animal attributes and and we're very much culturally kind of returning to that uh in in this roundabout way and as you said it's it all hinges on the denial of the existence of death or the fear of death whichever way you want to look at it because they're almost the same thing but our, our culture is obsessed with um pretending we're never going to die and in so doing becomes very animalistic which 
is is mortality itself in a sense right there are several things there one is that another problem that we have is narcissism at the very center of the problem really is narcissism is egotism pride pride is the old word we use pride a lot to mean a lot of different things these days but pride basically is narcissism it's this self-centeredness and we are so self-centered as a people uh, it seems that we cannot admit any other gods but ourselves in our pantheon that is really our problem right and and our entire dogmatic system is just nothing more than my own opinion or at least an opinion that i've adopted from from someone else who probably got that from their own narcissism so that is one problem that we have another problem that we have is that we misunderstand what immortality is in fact there is a desire to become immortal to live as long as we can in fact there's a, a scientific pursuit to really find uh, whatever it is maybe genetically that causes us to die and you know find a gene and turn it off or something like that and i've been i've been working on a, a transcript for a primary care priest one of my other podcasts and i was i was thinking about this and i probably mentioned it in an episode but immortality for us is entirely different than perpetual mortality if we live forever we're still still mortal if we live forever we will perpetuate living in a state of spiritual death and we could still die i mean there could be an accident or something even if we learn how to regenerate but what immortality is which was made possible by christ in his resurrection immortality is the destruction of death to be immortal means to have a physical body that is thoroughly spiritualized that can no longer die it can no longer be touched by sickness or death and that's entirely different and the only way that we can experience that holistic healing of an immortal body with a perfected soul is with god we can't we can't do it ourselves right and this is this is why humility is so important right? we live in a world of pride pride is the opposite of humility but if you don't have humility then you can't recognize that there is something that you fundamentally can't do on your own and what you can't do on you on your own is you can't heal yourself on your own you can't heal your soul on your own you can't heal your body on your own in the fullest sense we can work on ourselves psychologically we can work on ourselves emotionally we can work on ourselves with regard to behaviors we can work on ourselves with regard to physical health but there is this limit to what we can do on our own what god wants for us is this change this perfection of health of body and soul that we cannot 
accomplished without being acted on by God himself. And that is by experiencing his presence. And that is done within the church that he has established on earth as the hospital to heal us and and by walking the way that him, he himself has established for us. Absolutely. Um, we say resurrection so much in church life. I think we forget it's a very technical term that is not a synonym for resuscitation. Resuscitation is a return to mortal life, and that's not what resurrection is. It is different. There are miracles in the Gospels where people who are physically dead are brought back to life, and that's a resuscitation. And it, that's important because those happen before Christ's resurrection, and he is the first fruits. And so we have to remember those people weren't resurrected, they were resuscitated, and there is a difference. This is true of the story of Lazarus, which we celebrate not long before we celebrate Christ's resurrection. And that is the healing of Lazarus, because Lazarus was in the tomb for several days to the point that his body began decomposing. So this is a, a healing of his mortal body and a return to life in this mortal life. And after that, Lazarus lived for a while, and then he died again, because uh, Lazarus is destined for true immortality. Shall we hear uh, another poem? Yes. Please. Uh, this one's a bit longer, so um, forgive me if I stumble at some point along the way, but we'll do what we can. God planted the fair garden. He built the pure church upon the tree of knowledge. He established the injunction. He gave joy, but they took no delight. He gave admonition, but they were unafraid. In the church, he implanted the word, which caused rejoicing with its promises, which causes fear with its warnings. He who despises the word perishes. He who takes warning lives. The assembly of saints bears resemblance to paradise. In it each day is plucked the fruit of him who gives life to all. In it, my brethren, is trodden the cluster of grapes to be the medicine of life. The serpent is crippled and bound by the curse while Eve's mouth is sealed with a silence that is beneficial. But it also serves once again as a harp to sing the praises of her creator. Among the saints, none is naked, for they have put on glory, nor is any clad in those leaves or standing in shame, for they have found through our Lord the robe that belongs to Adam and Eve. As the church purges her ears of the serpent's poison, those who had lost their garments, having listened to it and become diseased, have now been renewed and whitened. The effortless power, the arm which never tires, planted this garden, adorned it without effort. But it is the effort of free will that adorns the church with all manner of fruits. The Creator saw the church and was pleased. He resided in that paradise which she had planted for his honor, just as he had planted the garden for her delight. That's beautiful. It is beautiful. And it's about the church, and the church is beautiful. In the culture we live in, when one hears the word church, an image of an institution, 
may come to mind, or maybe a small congregation that for some people is attached to memories of, of trauma. Really in Western culture, I would say in some ways, the church as a word almost has been rendered meaningless because through history from the 11th century, really when the Church of Rome was separated from its sister churches and therefore the ancient Orthodox Church, that from that time when the, the church was redefined to be oriented around the Bishop of Rome and then several centuries later when church became redefined again to not be the Bishop of Rome, but to be really more vague where the word of God is preached and where the sacraments are administered, but those really were understood within a very particular Protestant framework. So we see that from that time of the 11th century, about that time, when we start seeing a redefinition of church, that what the church is means pretty much what people want it to mean. But for those of us who are Orthodox, the church is this paradise on earth, this garden, this assembly of the saints along with the angels, assemblies of those who are part of the church here and those who have gone on before us all together in worship. That is what the church is for us. And the church is this restoration of paradise wherein the tree of life is planted. And this is where the medicine is made, the medicine of immortality to restore human beings back to where we should be. So I love this because the church is beautiful. And, and let me say this, the, the church is not an institution. It's not an organization. It's not something that's human. Now we have organization, we have institution, we have that which is visible. But underlying all of that is this deep mystery. The church is this well of spiritual experience that's, that's inexhaustible. And the church is perfect. And in the Western world, we know, I mean, we, again, we, we only know really streams of Christianity often that are separated from the Orthodox Church. That is the Church of the Apostles in the East that's still there, right? And we're part of that church. So uh, in, in the West, we have this distorted view. But as Orthodox Christians, we know that the church is perfect. Now, the problem is this. Individually, we are only perfect in as far as we experience the perfection of the church. And there's the problem. So it's, uh, it, it's not that the church is not perfect, it's that individually our repentance is not done. There's something that I like to say that I heard a long time ago and it's so instructive, but it's that if you ever find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. And what, what that means is, you know, if, if you see an individual congregation and you think it's perfect, 
you're bringing your own stuff there, right? You're bringing your own imperfection. And the church is a hospital. So uh, judging people in the church for hypocrisy or whatever is like you're going to a hospital because you're sick, but you wonder what all those other people did that got them in there, themselves in there, you know? Uh, we're, and I like to say the church is, is a hospital and we're all in the psychiatric ward. I mean, our spiritual sickness affects our rational minds. So we don't love as we should because we don't see each other as, as we should. And St. Ephraim beautifully paints this picture of what the church is. And let me say this too generally about the fathers of the church when we read them and, and, and the scripture. They are writing not from philosophical speculation. This is true even of works in which the Trinity is being expressed. It's not philosophical speculation. They are, they are writing from a depth of spiritual experience. So when we read St. Ephraim, and he's describing the beauty of the church and what paradise is like, the only way we understand fully what St. Ephraim has seen and that he is experiencing is to have the same experience ourselves. And we have to realize that the Orthodox spiritual life is not a life in which we just rationally read the stories of the saints, or we hear the stories of the saints on the podcast, or we hear or read the writings of the saints, and we think just how beautiful that is and magnificent, and, and how poetic and how intelligent. The reason that we read these things is because we are called to have the same experience as the saints. And our lives will not be identical to many of the saints that we read. Some will be monastics, some will be hermits. And yet, the spiritual experience from which comes their knowledge, their, their intimate experiential knowledge and their wisdom, we, are, we will have that, we are called to that. And that really, that's important. That is when uh, we acquire in a fuller sense, what we call the mind of the church, which is the mind of Christ and the mind of the Father, right? We, we acquire this way of, of thinking and seeing the world in a, a spiritual way, right? Sort of with, with God's eyes. And, and we have this knowledge. This is why Orthodox theology is consistent, is those who are writing theology are experiencing the same God, right? The God, the one who is the creator God, and all of that do is done within the church. So the church, uh, correctly understood, the Orthodox Church is a paradise. And it may take us a while to dive into the spiritual life and acquire enough humility through our repentance and prayer and enough obedience to acquire that knowledge to see what the church is. But once we see what the church is, uh, we see the power of the presence of God there, then we will see that God's grace and God's mercy and God's desire to heal us is uh, greater than whatever we think our hypocritical neighbor is doing. Yeah, this has been a, a drumbeat uh, in our episodes over the last well, several months, I think, probably. 
And primarily because in our culture, we have this terrible definition that everybody uses to say that faith is believing in stuff there's no evidence for, which just drives me crazy because it's completely backwards. You know, we, we talked about St. Gregory the Theologian last week uh, in our episode and going back then previously when, I, when we did our episode about St. John, the apostle evangelist and theologian, a true theologian is somebody who has met God. And so faith in that sense is exactly the opposite of what the world, it's the only people who have any real evidence because it, we're, we're all trapped in our subjective experience. You know, we, we live in a culture that thinks science can give us all this objectivity, which is, I don't know where people get this from because it just, it just makes no sense. You know, we, we have no access to a point of reference outside of ourselves to verify anything beyond our own senses uh, and our own consciousness, which as we know is fallible and deluded most of the time. And so everything we have in in the world around us, even just knowing that I exist or knowing that you exist when I talk to you, we that we're actually taking on faith in that bad sense of, I have no evidence you exist. I choose to believe you exist. But a theologian, a saint, has met God in a way that transcends our fallen senses. They've, they've had real knowledge, real experience that is, that is beyond uh, the, the, the limits of mortal creation. And so that's actual evidence. And so faith in that sense is believing in something that you and another person that have done it can both transcend your fallen state and compare notes and say, yes, we've met the same Trinity and it's definitive because now you do have a point of reference outside of yourself. Right. And so it's completely the opposite of what the world says it is. And humorously, if someone says to me, do you have faith that your wife exists? You know, do you believe in your wife? I'd be like, believe in her. I've, I've seen her, right? I mean, we, <laughs> we, we've, uh, we, you know, we have this a relationship, right? We have this experience of not only getting married, but being married and having children. So it seems like a ridiculous question. And, and, and it's true. Like faith in God is not this sort of gap that we have. And it's true. A lot of apologetics online, of Protestant apologetics, and 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 maybe either even other streams of apologetics, are often philosophically based. And faith can seem like this uh, way of filling in a gap. You know, we have all of this evidence for something, and then we just need to take this like logical leap. If we believe like these five things are true, why can't we take a leap and believe this other thing? But yeah, faith in the ultimate sense really is faith because of knowledge by experience, right? I believe in Christ, right? And, and, it, and there's a difference here. To believe in God doesn't mean just believing that God exists, right? Believing in Christ doesn't mean just believing that Christ exists. It's like if you're falling off a cliff, and someone grabs a hold of you and you are believing in them that they are not going to let you fall, right? That's really what it's about. When Peter, you know, uh, starts sinking while trying to walk on water and Christ, you know, uh, grabs a hold of him, uh, that trust. So faith really involves uh, experience and knowledge by experience, not just some kind of rational 
you know, we and and real, real trust. I mean, that's what it is. It's uh, it's something much more than uh, what it comes across. If people see Christianity as a you know a philosophical system or some kind of doctrine, which it's it's not that. I mean, it's it's far deeper. This this life that is the Orthodox spiritual. I'm so glad you picked those two examples. Something that I come back to a lot is faith as vulnerable trust. You know, Christ said to become like a little child. And, and what do children do? They, they're completely vulnerable. They're mostly helpless. And yet they trust in people who are bigger, stronger, more powerful than they are, that we all have their best interest at heart. And that is, it goes back to what you said before about narcissism and pride most of our struggle is coming to terms with the trauma that most of the universe isn't me because that's scary. I can't control almost anything. And so much of our culture is built around the delusion that we can control everything. And faith in that sense is realizing, no, I am very small. I am very broken. And the safest place I can be is in God's hands, not in my own hands. <laughs> Right. And, you know, if, if, if God doesn't exist, right, I mean, if, if that, if that uh, were true, then, you know, there's no, there's no reason for anything, right? I mean, yeah, there can't be meaning. I don't know, the universe just is. And, um, well, I mean, what is love? It's just, I mean, biochemicals, right? I mean, it's, just, and, and, and if, what kind of relationships can you have that have permanence when love is nothing more than this like chemical reaction that you can't control right so uh it, it's really interesting i mean you know trying to have the faith in a philosophical sense that god doesn't exist right which also takes in a philosophical sense faith, faith uh that that doesn't solve any problem i mean it really uh in, in some ways shows us that there's no one in, nobody's in control of anything like there is there is nothing and um, one thing about when you know God exists and you experience God this goes back to St. Ephraim in Genesis when you unite yourself with God when you decide I'm going to follow the one who is the creator of the universe really the true and living God then you become part of this story. Now we're we're all part of this story that starts in Genesis. There's this human story that starts in Genesis, and that's the story really of who we could be, and yet we fall into chaos. And we can be part of that continuing story. And at least when we follow God, we become aware of it. But there's this other stream of the story, and that is God loving us so much that really from from Genesis. From the time we fell, God working to restore us to life. That's what the establishment of the church is about. That's what the Christ coming into the world is about, right? God coming, taking on human flesh to destroy death for us, and then restoring all things in the kingdom, right? That's that's the fulfillment. I mean, the kingdom is not, we think of it in the salvation in our world as sort of Salvation, you get this ticket and you after you die you get into this like place with you know golden streets and things, but that's a very 
a very uh, wooden way of understanding the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven really is living in the presence of the Creator God, in which you are being transfigured. Right? There's no there's no sun in the heavenly city. Why? Because God is light, and you're not you're not only seeing the light; the light is in you. Right? Everything is enlightened. Everything is is illumined. That's true enlightenment. Right, and it's not the light bulb coming on in the head. You know, rational enlightenment. It's not some form of just emptiness. I mean, it's it's it is this uh, kingdom of heaven experience. And um, so, when you in faith bring yourself into God's presence, and you decide to follow God, you want to unite yourself with God, then all history has meaning. All life has meaning. And individually, we become part of this story—not only part of this story of this universe that we are now aware of. We become part of of the restoration and the healing and the transfiguration of the people around us and of the universe. Right? We become part of the hope and 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 the fullness of of the experience of love and and of of everything that is good and. Uh, it's it's a beautiful thing, and that is what Saint Ephraim, in as far as we might only understand a little, what Saint Ephraim himself is experiencing. Uh, we know enough that if we understand what he's talking about, even on a surface level, we want that <laughs> compared to a fallen and corrupted world. Absolutely. Well, shall we go through one more poem, please? And this one is from. In 11, and it's uh, also quite long. So if I stumble again, please forgive me. More numerous and glorious than the stars in the sky that we behold are the blossoms of that land, and the fragrance which exhales from it through divine grace is like a physician sent to heal the ills of a land that is under a curse. By its healing breath, it cures the sickness that entered in through the serpent. The breath that wafts from some blessed corner of paradise gives sweetness to the bitterness of this region. It tempers the curse of, on this earth of ours. That garden is the life breath of the diseased world that has been so long in sickness that breath proclaims that a saving remedy has been sent to heal our mortality. What need was there that from that land a river should flow forth and divide itself? except that the blessing of paradise should be mingled by means of water as it issues forth to irrigate the world, making clean its fountains that had become polluted by curses, just as the sickly water had been made wholesome by the salt. Thus it is with another spring full of perfumes which issues from Eden and penetrates into the atmosphere as a beneficial breeze by which our souls are stirred, our inhalation is healed by this healing breath from paradise, springs receive a blessing from that blessed spring which issues forth from there. A vast censer exhaling fragrance impregnates the air with its odiferous smoke, imparting to all who are near it a whiff from which to benefit. How much the more so with paradise the glorious. Even its fence assists us, modifying somewhat that curse upon the earth by the scent of its aromas. When the blessed apostles were gathered together, the place shook and the scent of paradise, having recognized its home, poured forth its perfumes, delighting the heralds by whom the guests are instructed and come to his banquet. 
Eagerly he awaits their arrival, for he is the lover of mankind. Make me worthy through your grace to attain to paradise's gifts, this treasure of perfume, this storehouse of scent. My hunger takes delight in the breath of its fragrance, for its scent gives nourishment to all at all times, and whoever inhales it is overjoyed and forgets his earthly bread. This is the table of the kingdom. Blessed is he who prepares it in Eden. I love this image of heaven. And it's, it's a, again, it's about beauty. And it's about, it's about the church here. We began experiencing the kingdom of heaven here. And, you know, in the church, if you come to a church service, we take incense and place it on a hot coal and bless it. And there's this beautiful smoke that comes from the incense and, and, and this wonderful fragrance. And it reminds us of our prayer rising to God. And it reminds us of God's presence with us in this life. And when we come together as the church, we are, we are in paradise. We are with all the saints uh, who have lived throughout history. We are with the angels, and God is present with us. And we get a taste in this life of the paradise that is to come in its fullness. And I want everyone to know that. Now, when people first come to church sometimes, especially if they're not used to seeing uh, the services, sometimes it takes a while just to get used to what you're seeing and if you're like me when you come to the church uh, some the first time sometimes you're in compare and contrast mode right we get into rational mode and we're trying to figure things out but if we begin to learn to pray with our hearts uh, then we can experience something of paradise and that the worship service is there to draw us in to this beauty uh, this transformational beauty and uh, i i love this because this it just says our worship services are multi-sensory right um, even though the heavenly kingdom this experience is beyond the senses we can see how the sense experience we have of of incense can uh, teach us something or point us toward the beauty that is so far beyond us so beautiful beyond us that our rational minds cannot even comprehend. When we were talking before about the perfection of the church, uh, I'm always reminded of the image of the church as uh, the bride of Christ under those circumstances where there's, there's one bride. There can't be two, there can't be 30,000, there's one. And she can't be divided or have branches or, you know, there's, there's one bride of Christ and she has to be perfect because she's the bride of the king. Uh, and then when we get into this discussion about the beauty of the church and the way that it manifests its worship, I always think of the other image of, of the church as the body of Christ that has many members and they're all different. And there's a nose and there are eyes and there are fingertips and there are feet and all the senses are there and all the senses are used and all the members are there and all the members are used. And as you said before, you know, every saint takes on the likeness of Christ, but they all look different and they all live a unique life. You know, it's, this isn't the pursuit of the divine in the sense of the obliteration of the self, which, you know, there are some systems in the world that 
have that idea. This is not that, you know, in with God's help, if I ever even come close to uh, these things in my own life, I will still be me. Right. Uh, which is completely mind blowing to think about because so much of how I think about myself is in terms of all the things that are wrong with me. Right, right. Who, like, I will still be me, but what does that mean? Right, right. If all the parts of me that are broken are healed, I don't even know what that looks like, uh, you know, and God willing, someday I will experience it, but that's a really different thing and it will be true for each of us. And so, you know, when we are the the body of Christ, it's this, it's this amazing, um, I mean, it makes me think of, uh, it makes me think of the poetry and the Tao of, you know, the the manifestation of the 10,000 things right? where there's just this flourishing of life and abundance and fullness uh, that comes through all the members. Absolutely. And that takes us back to also an aspect of the church. And that is that it is the church is the assembly of, of all of us together, right? In unity and in the indescribable unity. It's, it's deeper than just like what we say as fellowship, right? Which sometimes means kind of like socializing, you know, there's this deep unity. Uh, and the whole spiritual life is something that we have to individually choose to participate in, right? Christ has done certain things for our nature. He has accomplished the healing of our nature. We have to individually decide that we want to personally participate in that healing and that transfiguration that change because really salvation is change positive change i mean if we don't go through the path of salvation to change positively we will disintegrate into negative change <laughs> but that positive change is something that even though we choose it individually and we are involved individually we always do together there is not this just jesus and me even if you're a hermit even if you're a monk in the middle of nowhere, you're still part of the church. So salvation is for us together. And this spiritual life is sort of imaged as a ship. The church is imaged as a ship because we are headed in the same direction and we are doing that in unity, but uh, together. And that's important in our very individualistic culture to remember. Absolutely. And again, it's a vulnerable trust. Being in a boat uh, out in, in open water is vulnerable trust. There's If something goes wrong, there's nothing you can do about it. That's right. So you have to trust the boat. Uh, and I like what you said about it, it always being us, even in extreme circumstances, it's always us. You know, St. Mary of Egypt was preserved in her mortal life until she could participate in the Eucharist, which she had never done up to that point. Uh, but she was preserved until that could happen. Uh, she could confess to someone and receive, uh, and then she passed on. And so even in these really extreme examples, uh, you know, we could look at an exception like the thief on the cross. Okay, he wasn't baptized, but he confessed and he was right there in the presence of Christ. And, and so, you know, there's a completion there that does happen, even though it's exceptional, but it's, it's all relationship. It's, and beyond just, as you said, beyond just my relationship, to God. I mean, even in the way we talk, we talk about someone being baptized. It's passive. It happens to you, which means there have to be other people to do it. You can't, you can't baptize yourself, me and Jesus. There has to be a church that baptizes you or 
marries you or you know again even a wedding i mean we now think of weddings as i picked a woman and we got you know and and we're married but it's like it's a passive verb we we you know the wedding happened to us yes yes and if it, if it was only saint mary of egypt alone we would never know her story <laughs> so. exactly well, I think that's all the poems that we had to to go through, and we've been talking for about an hour now. Um, is there uh, something that you could share with us, uh, bringing us back to Saint Ephraim, that uh, could sort of put a benediction on our conversation, Father? Saint Ephraim teaches us about salvation, and he gives us an image that we should strive to experience an image of salvation. So let's not just read St. Ephraim and think how beautiful it is, but let's try through our repentance and prayer following the same path that St. Ephraim did in that regard to experience the true and living God that we may know more deeply what St. Ephraim really experienced and what he is talking about. Thank you so much, Father. It's been a joy to talk to you. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week along with Nick. Uh, until then, if you could uh, close us with the blessing, please. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh Lord, our God, help us to open our hearts that we may receive your wisdom that we may walk your way. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.